Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We thank our witnesses for being here and, and look forward to their testimony. We're obviously here today to talk about Russia and its role in the world. Together, our countries have conquered the Nazis, prevented the proliferation of nuclear weapons in the 1990s, and worked against terrorists in the years after 9-11. Yet for most of modern history, Americans and Russians have found themselves at cross purposes. Throughout the Cold War, we trained to obliterate each other. With the fall of the Berlin Wall, many politicians argued that the difficult days of confrontation were behind us. Leaders like Gorbachev and Yeltsin worked to place Russia on a path towards democracy and peaceful engagement with the rest of the world. Reagan asked for the walls to be torn down. George W. Bush had Putin come to his home in Texas, and Obama, Obama sought to reset the relationship in a way that prioritized communication and cooperation. Scholars will long argue over exactly when the U.S.-Russia relationship again became confrontational, but looking back, the Russia-Georgia War in August of 2008 seems to be the mark of the beginning of a new age. Since that summer, a so-called resurgent Russia has pushed back on the institutions and allies of the West. Russia has invaded Georgia and Ukraine, striking them in ways designed to prevent their integration into the European Union and the North Atlantic Treaty Alliance. Russia has acted contrary to the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the new Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, the Open Skies Treaty, and the Incidents at Sea Agreement. Russia has altered the human rights landscape within its own country, decreasing democracy and begging questions about the future of governance, not just in Moscow, but across the Federation. Moreover, Russia joined the civil war in Syria and began militarizing the Arctic. Now when we talk about U.S.-Russia relationship, the ways that we interact globally, the days following the end of the Cold War seem very far away, as the relationship has once again grown distrustful and confrontational. As we meet today to talk about the role that Russia has come to play in the last several years, we must address these topics through the lens of realism. It would be easy to simply catalog the events that have brought us to where we are today, but we are charged with a higher responsibility, which is not only to diagnose the problem, but to begin generating prescriptions for where we go next. Discussions about the violations of norms must be paired with conversations about ways of effectively setting boundaries and engaging with Russia in order to make our world more stable and ultimately to serve U.S. national interests. Our countries are too powerful and the interplay between us too important to resign ourselves to the increasing risk of confrontation and escalation. I look forward to hearing today how we can recognize the new realities of the U.S.-Russia relationship and implement a, a new strategy that puts us on a better trajectory. And with that, I'll turn to our distinguished ranking member, Senator Cardin. Well, Chairman Corker, first let me thank you for calling this hearing and let me concur in all of your comments in your opening statement. I totally agree with the points that you raised and the challenges we have in regards to our relationship with Russia. Today, we meet to discuss Russia's efforts to undermine institutions that have maintained peace and security in Europe since the end of the Cold War. Russia's actions in Georgia in 2008, support for separationist enclaves in Georgia and Moldova, invasion of Ukraine, illegal annexation of Crimea, and the ongoing support for the combined Russian separationist forces in eastern Ukraine have challenged the security 
of sovereign borders, something that has been a mainstream of relations in Europe since the signing of the Helsinki Accord in 1975. And we have serious concerns about Russia's compliance with seminal arms control treaties. While I understand that Russia complies with treaties like New START, it is in violation of others like the INF, and there are compliance issues with Open Skies Treaty. I'm concerned about these violations and look forward to hearing how we can strengthen our ability to verify and enforce their terms. There are legitimate questions about the value of such accords as Russia wantonly disregards its international commitments. This should not lead us to the conclusion that all arms control agreements should be ripped up. While not perfect, these agreements afford us some visibility into Russia's intentions. I also want to underscore the importance of these treaties to our allies, especially open skies. As we seek to bolster European unity in the face of Russian aggression, pulling out of open skies would send the wrong message to our friends. What is often lost in the debate about Russia's negative behavior abroad is how it treats its own people at home. Last year's horrific murder of Boris Nutsov, just steps from the Kremlin, is the most sobering example of the danger facing the opposition. Today, we are honored to be joined by Vladimir Karamursa, prominent member of the political opposition who was poisoned in Moscow under suspicious circumstances and spent months in a coma. Vladimir, thank you for your courage and all that you do for the people of the Russian Federation. News, new laws targeting foreign agents and undesirable organizations which label MGOs as traitors of the Russian state have impeded the work of NDI, OSIF, and the MacArthur Foundation. Putin has fueled corruption by weakening the rule of law, and his associates know that their fortunes depend on access and allegiance to the regime. And those who make public these corrupt acts are threatened, abused, or even worse. Sergei Magnitsky was one of them and he paid the ultimate price for his honesty. As everyone here knows, the Magnitsky Law targets human rights abusers inside Russia. While 40 people have been sanctioned since 2012, I call on the administration to hold accountable more human rights abusers in the country. As human rights violations increase, so should our response. In summary, Russia under Putin is a kleptocratic regime intent on undermining democracy at home and abroad. Yes, we will have shared interests with the Russian regime, and we need to pursue them, but we can never forget our principles and turn a blind eye to human rights violations committed by the Putin regime. Mr. Chairman, again, thank you for convening this hearing, and I look forward to hearing from our witnesses. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we do appreciate our witnesses being here. I, I don't think uh, we've had as many people on the outside of the building trying to get in, uh, so it's obviously something people care about, and we thank the Honorable Victoria Newland. Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs for being here. We look forward to your testimony. Dr. Michael Carpenter, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. Uh, Y'all have been here before. You know you can summarize in about five minutes. Uh, we've read your written testimony in advance, and we look forward to the questions that follow. But if you'd start, uh, Tori, it'd be great. Thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, members of this committee, for the opportunity to join you and discuss the challenges posed to international peace and security by Russia today and the administration's policy towards Moscow. 
As you all know, for more than 20 years following the collapse of the Soviet Union, the United States has sought to build a constructive relationship with Russia and to support that country's greater integration into regional and global institutions and the rules-based international order. Our working assumption in doing this was that a more integrated, democratic, secure, and prosperous Russia would be a safer, more predictable, and willing partner for the United States and our allies. By two, uh, 2014, however, we had no choice but to reevaluate our assumptions following Russia's invasion of sovereign Ukrainian territory, first in Crimea and then in eastern Ukraine, which shattered any remaining illusions about this Kremlin's willingness to abide by international law or live by the rules of the institutions that Russia joined at the end of the Cold War. Our approach to Russia today <coughs> seeks first to deter further aggression through the projection of strength and unity with our allies, second, to build resilience and reduce vulnerability among friends and allies that are facing Russian pressure and coercion, third, to cooperate on core security priorities when our, Russia, when our interests and Russia's do align, and fourth, to sustain ties to the Russian people to preserve the potential for a more constructive relationship in the future. Let me go through these. First, strength and deterrence. To counter the threat posed by Russian aggression and deter any military moves against NATO territory, over the past two years, the United States and our NATO allies have maintained a per persistent rotational military presence on land, sea, and air all along NATO's eastern edge, the Baltic states, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria. As we look towards the NATO summit in Warsaw this coming July, allies will institutionalize a more sustained approach to deterrence, including by enhancing forward presence in the east to reduce response times to any aggression. To support this commitment, the President has requested $3.4 billion to fund the European Reassurance Initiative. With your support, these funds will be used to deploy an additional rotational armored brigade combat team to Central and Eastern Europe and for pre-positioning of combat equipment as well as additional trainers and exercises in Europe. Dr. Carpenter will talk about this in detail. To press Moscow to bring an end to the violence in Ukraine and fully implement its commitments under the Minsk agreements, we've worked with the EU, the G7, and other like-minded nations to impose successive rounds of tough economic sanctions on Russia over the past two years. And we're now working intensively with Europe to ensure that EU sanctions are rolled over at the end of this month and to support France and Germany in their lead diplomatic role to push for the full impl implementation of the Minsk agreements, including the withdrawal of all Russian forces from Ukraine and the return of Ukraine's sovereign border. Next, resilience of partners. Even as we defend NATO territory, we're also working to reduce the vulnerabilities and increase the resilience of those countries across Europe that face pressure from Moscow. To help Ukraine, the United States has committed over $600 million in security assistance. We've trained 1,700 Ukrainian conventional forces and National Guard personnel. We've provided counter-artillery and counter-mortar radars, over 3,000 secure radios, uh, and a number of other pieces of equipment to help Ukrainian troops success, uh, successfully resist further advances and to save lives. Um, to continue our work across Europe and Eurasia to strengthen democratic institutions, reform economies, fight corruption, and build the resilience of our partners, 
uh, we have requested $787 million in FY17 uh, focusing on our priorities on those countries that are most vulnerable to Russian pressure. Our programs and advisors focus on improving governance, squeezing out graft and fraud, strengthening justice systems, improving election standards, hardening border security and homeland defenses, and building energy independence to make countries more resilient and stronger in the face of pressure. We're also deepening intelligence cooperation across Europe and Eurasia to detect and blunt Russia's covert and overt efforts to manipulate the internal politics of European countries. Even as we push back against Russian aggression and support neighbors that are under pressure, the United States will continue to look for areas where our interests and Moscow's align. We've worked with Russia, for example, to remove Syria's declared chemical weapons, to prevent Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons, to contain the nuclear threat emanating from the DPRK, and to negotiate and implement the New START Treaty. As you all know, over the past eight months, Secretary Kerry has led multilateral efforts to try to resolve the crisis in Syria, establishing the International Syria Support Group, and forging a critical agreement on a cessation of hostilities, which has reduced violence even as that agreement is tested every single day. These efforts have all required hard-headed diplomacy with Russia, and we continue to call on the Kremlin to bring its influence to bear on the Assad regime to prevent civilian casualties and to end barrel bombing and the regime's obstruction of humanitarian aid deliveries to the besieged communities. Finally, we must continue to engage directly with those Russian individuals, businesses, and organizations who want to work with us, who share our interests and values, and who are working for a better future for their country. Despite Moscow's crackdown on civil society and a free press, our exchange programs and our scientific cooperation remain hugely popular with the Russian people. We will also continue to speak out against laws and policies that impede the work of Russian civil society and contravene the fundamental rights of freedom of expression, assembly, and association in Russia and elsewhere in the region. The approach that I've just outlined is not without challenges and contradictions. I will not claim that it has yet brought an end to Russian aggression in Ukraine or Moscow's unmitigated support for the Assad regime or its violations of treaties and global norms. However, I am convinced that U.S. and allied unity regarding Russia over the last two years has been essential to deterring even worse behavior, to protecting our own security, and to bringing the Kremlin to the table on critical issues from Ukraine to Iran to Syria. Thank you very much for your attention. I turn to Dr. Carpenter. Thank you, Dr. Carpenter. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee, I appreciate this opportunity to update you on the Department of Defense's strong and balanced approach to deterring Russian aggression, defending the homeland in our treaty allies, and strengthening the resilience of our allies and partners to Russian coercion and intimidation. Russia's interventions in Georgia in 2008 and Ukraine in 2014 have demonstrated a blatant disregard for its international commitments, including the most basic principles of the international order, including sovereignty, territorial integrity, and the inviolability of borders. In Syria, Russia has intervened militarily to prop up a murderous dictator, allying itself with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and Lebanese Hezbollah. Russia's nuclear saber-rattling raises troubling questions about Russian leaders' commitments to strategic stability and to norms against the threat of use of nuclear weapons. 
With regards to arms control commitments, Russia's record has been mixed. It has violated those agreements that pose impediments to its military modernization plans, such as the Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty or the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. However, it has honored others, such as the New START Treaty, which limits Russia and US deployed strategic nuclear weapons to historical low levels. Thanks to a robust military modernization program, Russia seeks to be a qualitative, if not quantitative, peer to the United States across the land, sea, and air, and space domains, in addition to in cyberspace and across the electromagnetic spectrum. Our approach to countering Russian coercion and aggression involves coordinating efforts across the force to strengthen our capabilities, posture, investments, plans. We aim to do this without foreclosing the possibility of working with Russia when it is in our interest. The most critical element of this approach is ensuring effective deterrence to support our most vital mission, defense of the homeland, which is reflected in the President's 583 billion fiscal year 2017 budget request. We are modernizing our nuclear forces. This recapitalization program includes a new long-range strategic bomber, ballistic missile submarine, an air-launched cruise missile, as well as life extension program for the B-61 gravity bomb. We are also moving forward the development of new technologies to ensure we maintain a qualitative military edge over potential high-end adversaries. These include new unmanned systems, enhanced ground-based air and missile defenses, new long-range anti-ship weapons, and innovative technologies like the electromagnetic railgun, lasers, and new systems for electronic warfare, space, and cyberspace. We will also continue to strengthen our alliances and partnerships. I thank Congress for its continued support for the European Reassurance Initiative. As Assistant Secretary Newland has mentioned since its inception in 2014, ERI has enabled the Department of Defense to strengthen our deterrence and assurance missions in Europe. The President's fiscal year 2017 budget proposes quadrupling funding for ERI to more than $3.4 billion, which will allow us to increase our force posture in Europe by augmenting two permanently stationed brigade combat teams with an additional armored BCT, um, as well as a fourth BCT worth of pre-positioned warfighting equipment. With our non-NATO partners, our goal is to improve their capabilities and capacity to deal with conventional and unconventional threats. In Ukraine, we have provided over $600 million to uh, enhance security since the start of the crisis. Our support has consisted of training programs to enhance Ukraine's internal defense capabilities, equipment to support the operational needs of its security forces, and advisors to advance the implementation of key defense reforms. So far, we have trained six companies from Ukraine's National Guard and five land forces battalions, and are, or rather are in the process of training five land forces battalions and one special operations battalion. While the scale of our assistance to Ukraine is unique, we are engaged in similar capacity building efforts with other non-NATO partners such as Georgia and Moldova. As Secretary Carter has underscored, the department's policy towards Russia is predicated on a strategic approach that is both strong and balanced, leaving the door open to Russia to return to compliance with its international norms and to constructive engagement with the international community. In the meantime, in concert with our allies and partners, we will continue countering Russian coercion and aggression with a posture that is defensive and proportional. In spite of Russia's actions, we will also continue to advance our strategic vision of a Europe whole free and at peace.
Thank you very much, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. We, uh, we have votes at 4 o'clock. We have two panels, so I've asked Bertie to put five minutes on the clock and ask that everybody try to stay within that. And um, I'm just going to ask one question and move on to Ben. But Secretary Newland, uh, we, we met briefly prior to this, this hearing. There's a narrative out there that uh, the U.S. and NATO pressured Russia by expanding uh, to areas uh, obviously adjacent to their border. And that is what has generated some of the discord, if you will, that uh, exists between our countries. You were involved in those negotiations extensively. I wondered if you'd give us a brief um, summary of your view of that. Thank you, Senator. I completely reject this narrative of grievance that it's somehow our fault. As you know, NATO is a defensive alliance. As we said to Russia at every stage in the expansion of NATO, we are not a threat to Russia in any way. And as you know, as we, through the various expansions of NATO, we sought also to deepen NATO's own relationship with Russia, first through the creation of the Permanent Joint Council and then the NATO-Russia Council. Um, I was, as you said, uh, active in those efforts, both in negotiating and as ambassador to NATO to try to implement those agreements. I frankly think that Russia did not take advantage of the opportunity that NATO put before it for cooperation. We really could have gotten to a place with a different attitude in the Kremlin where much of the uh, affirmative security that we were seeking in Europe and we were seeking against terrorists and uh, with regard to dangerous Iranian behavior could have been done jointly uh, in that structure, but we could never get there because of old efforts. Uh, also, in the, in the aught years, we reached out to Russia quite strongly, the U.S. did, to try to work together on missile defense programs to try to cooperate, and the Kremlin was never willing or able to take us up on those opportunities. So I regret very much that we are where we are, but I really do think that we uh, tried very hard on the U.S. side across uh, three administrations of both parties to, to reach out, and we will continue to try to do that, as I said. Thank you. I'm going to reserve the rest of my time for interjections and turn to our ranking member. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, to, to defend ourselves from w Russia's behavior and, and aggression, it be nice to know why they're doing what they're doing. Since 2008, they have used their military in an aggressive way to violate the sovereignty of other countries. So can you just share with me your thoughts as to what Russia's game is here? Are they trying to be, get a greater Russia? Are they trying to take on more territory under the umbrella of Russia? Are they trying to recreate the Soviet Union? What is their game plan here? Uh, Senator Cardin, I would simply say that as a U.S. official, I don't think it's particularly productive to try to speak for Russia. But I would just highlight some of the things that Russia's pre uh, president himself has said. Uh, I'd point to his uh, speech at the Munich Security Conference in 2007, where he very much uh, regretted uh, the loss of control over Soviet space, the loss of control over the, the, the failure, the, the, the end of the Soviet Union, et cetera. So uh, clearly that's something on his mind, but I would defer that question to Russians, frankly. Let me, um, it's not uh, safe to be in the political opposition these days in Russia. What is the administration doing to help uh, political pluralism in Russia uh, in regards to those who are opposing the Putin regime? I assume that's for me, Senator. Either one. Yeah. I'm open um, to a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, we continue to speak out strongly uh, whenever Russia takes moves to further contrain, con, uh, constrain the space for the non-governmental organizations to restrict uh, human rights, as I said in my opening, to constrain press freedom, 
Uh, we've worked with Vladimir and others uh, who are seeking a different future for Russia. We have programs both inside Russia and outside Russia to work with those uh, Russian activists who want to work with us to try to strengthen rule of law, to try to, try to strengthen a free press. We have a large number of Russian journalists who've actually fled, this, uh, fled Russia now who are working with us and with others in Europe to try to ensure there are, is um, independent Russian language news uh, inside going back into the country. We also work on uh, LGBT rights and other things inside Russia with those who want to work with us. And I'll follow up with some questions for the record in regards to this, but let me move to the Arctic for one moment. Climate change is changing the Arctic with the uh, ice melts. Uh, Russia has 4,000 miles of Arctic coastline. It's my understanding they have established six new bases in the north of the Arctic Circle. Uh, and they have deployed certain um, weapon systems there. Uh, what are we doing to respond to Russia's militarization of the Arctic? Well, you're absolutely right, Ranking Member Cardin, that Russia has invested um, significantly in capabilities in the Arctic over the last several years, including trying to create infrastructure in places like Novaya Zemlya and other parts of, of the Russian Arctic. Um, we seek to preserve the Arctic as a space for cooperation on scientific issues as we have, in fact, with Russia in the past, working on things like black carbon uh, and the danger that it poses to the Arctic environment, uh, as well as other issues. Um, however, we take very seriously Russia's uh, advancing capabilities in the Arctic, including the possibility that over time, Russia will be able to create in the Arctic elements of area access, uh, area <laughs> A2AD uh, bubbles, if you will, that will preclude uh, other nations from being able to uh, enjoy their freedom of navigation uh, in parts of the Arctic. And so we are investing, and the President's uh, fiscal year 2017 budget invests in uh, the types of capabilities that will allow us to augment uh, our force posture in the Arctic and also develop the sorts of capabilities that will help us to ensure uh, freedom of navigation and, and freedom of flight uh, for, our, for our troops in that region. And I take it we're working with our other Arctic partners uh, to try to minimize the, the potential here of, uh, of conflict, but it, it does seem like Russia is investing an awful lot in territorial claims in the Arctic. Well, Senator, um, we do have a good working relationship with Russia in the Arctic Council, where we try to preserve, uh, as I said, those areas of cooperation that are ongoing including environmental cooperation, but also importantly, uh, our Coast Guard has a search and rescue agreement with its Russian counterpart that has worked very successfully over the years. So we seek to preserve these, these areas of cooperation, but at the same time, develop our own military capabilities so that we are not caught off guard and so that we are keeping track uh, with the types of investments that Russia is making. Thank you. I'm gonna be respectful of the chairman's uh, five minute clock, but. I I'm going to be asking other questions for the record, including Russia's aggressiveness in revising history and using its communications to try to change the narrative of the, what, what is reality and how we're trying to counter that. Uh, propaganda can have a pretty strong impact, and uh, part of our strategies must be to make sure people understand what, is, what are the facts. And, I would welcome your response for the record in regards to those issues. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Purdue. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. You know, with the debt crisis we've got uh, and the popularity of your hearings, I think we might start charging tickets here. Uh, um, in all seriousness, though, I, I really thank you for this, uh, and I hope we'll have many more like this about Russia and China. I think these are the rise of these traditional rivals are, are really concerning to people back home. Russia, I'd like to talk, Dr. Carpenter, first about Russia, and I've got a second follow-up on, on the hybrid warfare. But I want to talk about Georgia for a minute, because I, I want to know what lessons we think we've learned after eight years. The Russians have had a history of creating these frozen conflicts where, without a peace treaty, everything seems to be going into normal, and yet I know next year in one of their um, regions, I think it's uh, Shivali, actually, they're, they're rumored to be having a referendum about uh, joining Russia again. So, I mean, this is a pressure that Russia keeps putting on there, and I'm very concerned. James Clapper, the director of the DNI, uh, National Intelligence, testified that the nation of Georgia, despite all its progress on Western integration and domestic reforms, is at increasing risk from Russian aggression and pressure uh, I visited Serbia last year and met uh, the Georgian Defense Minister, Tina uh, uh, Kitashali, and heard her concerns about the ongoing pressure and uh, so forth in, in Georgia. What lessons have we learned in terms of standing up? I, I know that the Georgia National, Georgia in the U.S. has National Guard has just had a forward deployment there. I'd like to get some feedback on that. Uh, and also, what are we doing now from a DOD standpoint to um, put pressure on Russia relative to Georgia, and what lessons, um, Under Secretary or Assistant Secretary Nguyen, what question, uh, what have we learned there relative to um, Crimea and the Ukraine? Well, thank you, Senator, and I completely agree with your assessment that Russia is continuing to place pressure on Georgia through a variety of different means. Uh, Russia currently occupies about 20% of Georgian territory in Abkhazia and South Ossetia. But about um, a third of the population, right? Uh, it's a significant portion of the population, and those administrative boundary lines that Russia uh, maintains continue to shift, especially in the South Ossetia region, uh, claiming ever more uh, pieces, increments of Georgian territory. Uh, Russia is also putting pressure on Georgia in a variety of other ways, and including this uh, proclaimed desire by the leader, de facto leader of South Ossetia, uh, to have a referendum on integration with Russia. Um, our goal since the Russian invasion of Georgia in 2008 has been to build Russia's uh, resilience uh, and reduce its vulnerabilities to Russian coercion. So we've spent about $480 million on security assistance uh, in Georgia since the crisis. Uh, just recently, two weeks ago, I was in Tbilisi uh, to participate in um, the noble partner exercise that we conduct with Georgia, where we had about 650 U.S. troops alongside about 500 Georgian troops and about 150 uh, U.K. Uh, troops, where we had airborne jumps into Georgia and we had uh, Abrams tanks as well as uh, uh, Bradley infantry fighting vehicles on the ground, helping them to develop their uh, self-defense capabilities. Over the course of the last 10 years, Georgia has contributed mightily to our uh, NATO efforts overseas, including especially in Afghanistan, where up until recently they have been the second largest troop contributor after the United States with 850 uh, troops. And in fact, they have suffered uh, about 32 casualties, if I'm not mistaken, about 282 wounded. So they have had uh, major sacrifices there. And a lot of our training program over the course of the last uh, decade has been focused on preparing Georgian troops for these overseas deployments, including Iraq and then later Afghanistan. 
now we are starting to position ourselves to devote more attention to training up Georgia's uh, troops for their self-defense capabilities. Do we so, have permanent troops on the ground in, uh, in Georgia? Uh, we don't plan to have permanent troops on the ground, but we uh, do plan to increase the tempo of our exercises and trainings uh, with Georgia. What lessons have we learned relative to Georgia as it relates to uh, uh, Crimea and the Ukraine? Well, Senator, I think the, the first one is the one that Dr. Carpenter highlighted, which is that we, in our partnership, our security partnership with Georgia, spent uh, a lot of the last decade helping Georgian forces prepare for expeditionary deployments to Afghanistan, et cetera, and probably not enough focus on strengthening Georgia's own homeland security, which is what we're now trying to correct, and not just as in U.S.-Georgia relations, but also in NATO-Georgia relations. Uh, the other lesson is the abiding one, which has a significant applicability for Ukraine, which is that the best antidote to Russian pressure is a successful, increasingly European, democratic Georgia or Ukraine, and to uh, take maximum advantage of the association agreements that both of these countries have with Europe. So that's why all of the programs that we uh, manage from the State Department are designed to squeeze out corruption, improve justice well, with, with due respect, and I have all the respect in the world for you, uh, Assistant Secretary. I've watched you, uh, and I'm sorry I'm over time, but I, 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 hate, I hate to, I, I walk away, I've been over there quite a bit, and I, and I walk away with the feeling that when we deal with Russia and Ukraine, we deal with Russia and Georgia, and I don't mean to, to uh, belittle this, but it sounds like it's their fault. It's Ukraine, it's Crimea, it's, it's Georgia's fault because they aren't quite as Western as we want them to be, therefore we haven't been able to do everything we need to do to help them. I know, they, I know we've got corruption issues in Ukraine, I know we've got Westernization issues in Georgia, but we, we've got an invasion that occurred and sovereign territory being possessed in violation <laughs> of the 1972 agreement with Russia and, and yet we're talking about all this other stuff at, at the same level of the invasion issue. So I'm, I'm sorry to take issue with that, but I, I really think that, that no question, two we cannot blame the victim. I agree completely, Senator. We have to strengthen these countries so that they can resist economically, politically, in security terms. Sorry, thank, thank you. Sorry, no, thank you, Chairman. thank you, Senator Coons. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Secretary Newland, I had an opportunity to meet with Vitaly Cherkin, the Russian ambassador to the United Nations, earlier this year, and. You referenced the difficult balance we try to strike between cooperating with the Russians on a number of important areas, um, some of our bilateral treaties uh, containing Iran's aggressive nuclear weapons program, and other areas where clearly we have uh, strongly discordant interests and where we are working to strengthen our allies, whether in the Baltics or Ukraine or NATO, in the face of Russian aggression. I came away from a meeting uh, with Ambassador Turkin convinced that they'll do everything they can to protect Iran and their ballistic missile launches from action by the Security Council. Uh, am I wrong? Um, what leverage do we have to sustain Russian engagement in a concerted effort to put pressure on Iran to stop some of its activities outside the JCPOA that really are destructive uh, to Iran's intentions or expressed desire to uh, rejoin the community of nations? Senator, I think you're not wrong in your assessment that Russia has only joined us in joint work against a nuclear threat from, from Iran. Having worked with Russia over many decades to try to 
encourage them to understand that that nuclear threat was a threat to Russia too. I would say that that is the number one trajectory we have to work with regard to the missile threat now, that Russia shouldn't uh, be so secure in its, in its confidence that it couldn't be on the other end of, of said missiles and therefore it has an interest in limiting or stopping Iran's missile program. That's where we have to work and we're continuing to, to try. I'd be interested, Dr. Carpenter, as well, in hearing whether, in your view, the European Reassurance Initiative uh, is genuinely working and whether our allies in the Baltics are confident in our commitment to their security. And what else do you think we here in the Congress can and should be doing to provide support across a whole range of areas of engagement, as uh, Senator mentioned? Uh, there are these frozen conflicts in Georgia and Moldova and now, for at least the time being, in the Ukraine. Uh, it's my hope, and you've both worked very hard on this, that our uh, EU allies will be advancing and continuing sanctions and continuing to engage with us. What more can and should we do to strengthen our Baltic allies? Well, thank you for that question, Senator. I think the ERI is, is working well, and I think when we begin to implement the 2017 uh, requested portions of ERI, we will be dramatically increasing our force posture on the eastern flank of the alliance, which will have a significant uh, deterrent impact on Russia. It will also, at the same time, assure our allies that we have force posture, that we have uh, genuine, uh, high-quality, high-end warfighting equipment in place uh, as necessary in the event of a crisis. Uh, I think the other piece to this that we cannot neglect is working with our NATO allies to ensure that those allies also have skin in the game. Um, and so as we talk about uh, augmenting NATO's presence in these countries, a lot of what we're doing under ERI is bilaterally uh, with each of these uh, allies in the East. But as we talk about increasing NATO's footprint, I think we'll, we'll be in a better place to have other allies with skin in the game, as I said, uh, and with uh, additional assets that they can bring to bear, which they uniquely possess because of their proximity to some of these countries uh, that will greatly aid in, in deterring Russia uh, in case it thinks about uh, potent, potential aggressive action in any one of these countries. And Assistant Secretary Newland, my, my last question as we look forward to the NATO summit, um, have we done everything we need to uh, to brace up and um, shore up and fully engage our NATO allies to provide that deterrent impact so that we then have a chance at meaningful diplomacy? And how do you assess Putin's uh, willingness to engage in rational diplomacy around the Ukraine conflict? Two big, two big questions. Uh, just mm -hmm. to add to what Dr. Carpenter has said on the Baltic states, uh, two pieces here. As I said in the opening, we over the past two years have had sort of an ad hoc approach to put a patchwork together of land, sea, and air presence in the Baltic. What you'll see at the Warsaw Summit is a sustained approach so that these allies can be confident that they will have um, regular persistent support and to make that much more routine and normal to create uh, joint headquarters in all of these countries and to ensure we can get there. The other piece on the Baltics that I think deserves highlighting is that we've worked on the spectrum of their resilience. So not just hard military, but also border security, integrated communications across uh, domestic uh, uh, agencies, et cetera. We've had our homeland security folks out there and we've really made uh, pretty good progress, but we need uh, other allies to um, be as vigorous and rigorous in their support, and we're working on that <coughs> as we head towards Warsaw. Uh, with regard to uh, Russia's readiness, willingness to negotiate with, with regard to Ukraine, there is an agreement on the table, as you know, the Minsk agreements, which call first for a full ceasefire 
access for the OSCE across eastern Ukraine, then a political package of decentralization for the people of Donbass, and then the withdrawal of weapons. So the French and Germans have taken the lead in, in trying to see that implemented. We have, in the last month and a half, greatly increased the role the U.S. is playing in parallel, working with both Kyiv and Moscow. I think our concern is, whereas we are making some progress now on the political package for the Donbass, we have not made the kind of progress that we need to see on the security piece, uh, and we're going to have to do a lot more to push Russia and the separatists to end the violence to allow the OSCE fully in. Well, thank you. And uh, thank Mr. Carmerza, thank you for your willingness to testify here today as well. And thank, thank you, Mr. You. Chairman. Thank you so much. Senator Brasso. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Secretary Nguyen, good to see you again. Um, I wanted to talk about the uh, Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces treaties. Russia has been violating the INF Treaty for quite some time. It was uh, finally made official and public in 2014. But in response to questioning on the matter, the administration said they're exploring their, quote, economic countermeasures in response to the violation. In the President's speech back in April of 2009 in Prague, he, he committed to ridding the world of nuclear weapons. He said that in order for non-proliferation regime to work, he said, violations must be punished, and then he said, words must mean something. It's President Obama, words must mean something. This administration has now said for years that they're considering economic sanctions against Russia uh, for its violation of the INF Treaty. Is Russia still in violation of that treaty? Uh, and when is the administration finally going to get around to punishing this violation of the treaty? Thank you, Senator Barrasso, Dr. Barrasso, as I like to call you. Um, as, as you have said, we have found Russia in violation over the last two years. We are engaged in discussions, negotiations with Russia to try to bring them back into compliance. We are also working with allies to bring pressure to bear uh, on Russia with regard to the violations. We are we're also working intensively, and this is part of our package for the Warsaw Summit, to ensure that NATO's own deterrent, including its nu nuclear deterrent, is updated and strong. We are, and uh, this is about all I can say at this point in an open hearing, uh, we are reviewing and working on a full range of options, a full range of options, to make sure that Russia cannot gain any significant military advantage from any system that they might develop outside of the treaty. And we are also investing in U.S. Te technologies that are designed to deter and defeat any Russian provocations. But I think going further than that, we'd have to mm -hmm. be in another setting. Yeah, but just in, in terms of, in that line of thought with what we could do, you know, the, the Open Skies Treaty, according to the, the State Department reports on arms control compliance, Russia's failing to meet its obligations on the Open Skies Treaty. It's uh, restricting access to some of its territories. Uh, it's shown a repeated pattern of, of violating its arms control obligations, including, as we just talked about, the intermediate range nuclear forces. So it's now asking that the Open Skies Consultative Commission for permission to use more powerful collection capabilities on flights over the United States. You know, it, it, to me, it says that the U.S. shouldn't be approving such a request for these upcoming, these, uh, these requested censors. It, it at least make it contingent upon Russia first coming into full compliance with the Open Skies Treaty and the, the INF Treaty. And I'd just be interested in your thoughts on that. Well, you're not wrong that Russia has been restricting some overflights. There is a, a list of places, Kaliningrad, uh, low altitude over Moscow, et cetera, where they've been restricting open skies flights. They had been restricting open skies flights over Chechnya in the last couple of weeks. 
they have reopened that territory in, in part due to the pressure we've been able to bring to bear from other Open Skies Treaty partners, particularly the Europeans who, who highly value this. Uh, I think you know that um, the first round of Russian requests for higher definition cameras were within the constraints of the treaty. Uh, and so from that perspective, it, were we to unilaterally restrict those flights, we could just expect they would do the same to us and that would make us uh, less uh, capable ourselves. With regard to their more recent uh, requests for um, really uh, potent visuals, we are still reviewing that internally. I don't know if Dr. Carpenter has anything to add on that. Uh, we can certainly brief you in a closed setting on that as well. Doctor. Well, I would just add that, um, to answer your question, Senator, that yes, Russia is in violation of its INF uh, treaty requirements not to produce, deploy, or flight test a ground launch cruise missile with a range between 500 and 5,500 kilometers. Um, we are looking at a, at a range of, we're looking at this more broadly in the context of Russia's aggressive behavior. And so we're taking a number of steps that are uh, being taken in that broader context to include uh, expanding and modifying uh, air defense systems together with our allies. We're also looking at investments uh, together with our allies and partners um, in advanced capabilities that will allow us to defend against complex cruise missile threats. Um, on the open skies issue, um, I would just associate myself with everything that Assistant Secretary Newland has said. The treaty process already provides a way forward for certification of the electro-optical camera that is now being in use as wet films go out of, uh, go out of business, essentially. Um, and so our ability to use this same sensor uh, down the road is impacted by, by the decisions that we take today. Yeah, because I mean, that's the follow-up. In terms of security risks, and Secretary Newland, you had said you'd want to take additional security risks for our country on this. Are there additional security risks and vulnerabilities uh, if, in fact, these new types of sensors uh, are allowed you know, on open skies aircrafts for us? Uh, Senator, I'm comfortable with the decisions that we've already made. We're reviewing exactly this set of issues as we look at the next set of requests from Russia. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Madam Secretary, for some context to my question, uh, let me summarize the current events as I see it. As Russia's September 18th primary uh, parliamentary uh, election draws close to the Kremlin's preparing the groundwork for another victory of Putin's United Russia Party, the current Duma itself, a product of a fraudulent 2011 election, has rubber-stamped a slate of new laws targeting the electoral process from impeding campaigning and observation to authorizing police forces to open fire on protesters. The state-sponsored ballot stuffing that sparked those Moscow pro uh, protests in 2011 has now evolved. The Kremlin and the Duma are instead barring opposition from registering now. Pro-government vigilantes have set up attacks on uh, opposition. Putin himself is repeatedly implicated in political assassinations and assassination attempts, as with Boris Nimtsov shot, shot outside uh, the Kremlin, dead outside of the Kremlin, or Mr. Uh, Karamuza, who is a witness here, uh, who uh, was poisoned near to death. The flames of nationalism are burning uh, as bright as Putin's imperial uh, adventures seem to be part of a campaign to make Russia great again. 
whether in Ukraine, where with the exception of congressional sanctions that uh, I and others helped offered and passed through this committee and the Congress passed in 2014, the administration has done relatively little to hold Russia accountable in meaningful material ways. Or in Syria, where we have been manured at having to coordinate with Russian forces who neither share common interests nor pursue common goals while hundreds of thousands have died and millions have been displaced. Or at the UN, where they resist sanctions on Iran for missile violations in violation of UN Security Council resolutions, which they supported. Or in their violation of the INF Treaty, for which two years we have had discussions but no consequences. So I worry that the message that Putin must be taking from our responses is that his limit testing, aggression, and opportunism is the right approach, particularly when there are relatively negligible consequences at the end of the day for all of the things that I've listed, among others. And this is certainly a dry run for the presidential 2018 presidential elections in Russia, where we would certainly expect Putin to continue to take advantage of the opportunities that he sees, whether that's the arbitrary violation of international borders, treaties, human rights, uh, compacts, or wherever he decides that suits his personal interests at the time. So I'm trying to get a grasp of we push the Ukrainians really hard to meet their four pillars, which have testified here very hard, but on the security side of the Minsk agreement, we're failing dramatically, but we keep pushing the Ukrainians. We uh, don't even talk about Crimea anymore. That's, I guess, gone. Uh, we have this violation of the INF Treaty, yet there are no consequences two years later, despite whatever engagement and uh, conversations are to bring them back. Uh, why aren't we more aggressively engaging in tools of diplomacy that can help us hopefully have Russia understand that there are consequences? Why aren't we using the OSCE? which is clearly they are a, a signatory to and have clear violations. Why aren't we looking at more visa denials? Why aren't we looking at more frozen accounts? Why aren't we looking at more Magnitsky listings? I, I, I don't get it. Because if everything, if what you're doing, and I heard your testimony and I read it before I came and I wanted to listen to it again, is still leaving you in the place that we're at, why is it that we don't seem to step up uh, towards the challenge that we have. Senator, I would not take issue with anything that you, you have said here with regard to the constraining of space inside of Russia and ramp up to the elections and uh, Russian external behavior. I would take issue with whether Russia is paying a price for this. We talked about the economic sanctions that you, this committee has supported over the last two years. I think Russia has paid a steep price, not simply through sanctions, but also through its Overdependence on on oil. We now have uh, Russians, you know, 13.4 percent of Russians living below the poverty line. We have a GDP contraction of 3.7 percent in Russia in 2015. Well, let me, let me. I have 18 seconds. Why not answer my core question? Why not more visa denials? Why not more Magnitsky listings? Why not more refusal to U.S. banks? As you will hear a witness who says, don't let his uh, ill-gotten gains of his uh, cronies end up in the United States. Why aren't we pursuing all of those OSCE? Why aren't we doing that? Well, we are working on, on all of those things. As you know, every year we add names to the Magnitsky list. The Magnitsky legislation is relatively constraining. It has to go to that particular case. 
but we have denied a number of visas in the context of Ukraine sanctions, in the context of Syria sanctions, and we're continuing to look at what more we can and should do. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, both of you, for being here today. And I, I want to follow up on what Senator Menendez just talked about, and that's consequences of bad behavior. Um, this past week, a number of us had the opportunity to visit Southeast Asia, uh, where we uh, visited with ministers from Singapore, uh, government leaders in Myanmar, uh, to new leadership in Taiwan, uh, participated in the Shangri-La Dialogue, where we visited with leaders from around the world who participated in that defense dialogue, including our own uh, Secretary of Defense, Ashton Carter. But when meeting with foreign governments, when meeting with leaders, they talk about U.S. leadership, and they talk about the positions that we are trying to uh, secure, positions that we are fighting for, like the South China Seas. And when we are asking them to take a tough line, uh, perhaps on something like the South China Sea, they see our lack of consequences in other circumstances, and question whether or not they should take a hardline position against a, a powerful nation or a, a situation such as their neighbor, China. And so we can't look at things in isolation as how we are responding to uh, Russia, how, because it affects what's happening and what's on people's minds in Asia, in Southeast Asia, excuse me, uh, in Singapore. It's the people around the globe are looking at our lack of response and lack of consequence uh, to, and deciding whether or not the U.S. is uh, somebody that they should uh, hitch their wagon to, so to speak, uh, or not. And I think that's a great challenge. And so whether it's Crimea, Ukraine, INF, Syria, Georgia, they don't see the consequences. And when we ask them to take a tough position, they don't see the reason why they should because they know the United States isn't going to follow through. And that's hurting our leadership around the globe. And it's hurting our ability to rally our allies to our side and to create the kind of rules-based order uh, that we need to in order to counter uh, the behavior of China, the behavior of Russia. And so I guess a couple questions. In your testimony, you state that, uh, quote, we have worked with Russia to remove Syria's declared chemical weapons to prevent Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons to contain the nuclear threat emanating from the DPRK, North Korea, and to negotiate and implement the New START Treaty. Uh, obviously, I think you'd agree that the, the nuclear threat in North Korea has not been contained. Is that correct? It has not. And so what is it that we're actually getting Russia to accomplish? Are they following through with the implementation of United Nations Resolutions 2270, the sanctions bill against North Korea? As you know, in the context of these, this latest round of sanctions, we had difficult conversations with Russia, but we were able to get Russia to join uh, a deeper regime against North Korea than we have had in the past. We will, you know, and they had particular interests that they wanted uh, managed there, but we did better than some expected because of the pressure from the Asian allies. Are they, are they completely uh, implementing 2270? Um, I frankly don't have the details. My understanding is that in the, in the broad strokes they are, whether they are in detail, I'd have to do more work. And what is their position on THAAD in uh, South Korea? Dr. Dr. Carpenter, if that's more appropriate to you. Russia has um, traditionally opposed the um, advanced air defense capabilities that we provide to allies both in Europe uh, as well as in uh, East Asia. And what is their position? Let's just say, you know, if they're teaming up with China on THAAD and our efforts to contain the nuclear threat from North Korea, what are they doing in other areas? Are they teaming up with China on the uh, freedom of navigation operations as well? and opposing our efforts to provide uh, rules-based uh, governance according to international law? Senator, I, I don't see them 
teaming up with China on freedom of navigation, although clearly uh, the Chinese and other great powers are, are watching to see what Russia is able to get away with with respect but Russia to Russia hasn't supported our operations in the South China Sea, have they? Has Russia supported our? Correct. No. Okay, so, so they're taking the same position as China then on freedom of navigation operations. Senator, I would characterize it as they have not taken a vocal position uh, one way or the other. They have, they have largely remained uh, in the background on this. Uh, and so, I, the, to Dr. Carpenter, while I'm with you, I guess I would just follow up, and we can have that conversation as well in terms of what we are doing to push Russia to implement 2270 uh, and to agree to a, a, a true commitment to uh, a nuclear-free peninsula. Uh, I want to talk about a report that came out several months ago, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. This is the RAND report. Looking at an article here that says Russian invasion could overrun NATO in 60 hours. This article was published in February of 2016. That's about the time of the report. I'm sure you're familiar with this report. Uh, has this assessment changed uh, in your mind since this report was first published? Senator, I would, um, I would say that Russia clearly possesses a time-distance advantage if it were to decide to be an aggressor in the Baltic states, and that that poses certain limitations that we would have to overcome in terms of our ability to defend our NATO allies. Now, we are making the investments through ERI and otherwise precisely to have forces prepositioned as, along with warfighting equipment so that we are better able to deter Russian aggression in the first place. But, I mean, has this assessment in your mind changed substantially or substantively uh, since this report came out in February? Uh, Senator, we have done a number of our own internal exercises and reviewed our plans uh, and we've looked very carefully at the geography of the, the Baltic Basin and precisely that advantage that Russia possesses and we're taking steps to try to mitigate. And so I think what you're saying is basically nothing has changed since this report, substantively. And are you saying that your reports agree with the assessment of the RAND report? Uh, Senator, I would say that uh, by the end of 2017, when we implement all of the ERI funding that is coming online, that we will be much better poised to address the challenges and much better poised to deter Russian aggression in that region than we are now. I don't know that we've made significant... So the significant end of 2017 until we are better poised to deter the Russian threat. Well, Senator, we're, we're pre-positioning equipment on a, on a sort of an on, ongoing basis. Um, I don't know that we're significantly more advanced now than when the RAND report came out, but I'm confident by, by the end of 2017 when we have an additional armored brigade combat team worth of force posture on the eastern flank of the alliance that we will be. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for being here and for your ongoing efforts. Um, Part of Russia's campaign in Eastern Europe, in the Baltics, and Ukraine has been to produce disinformation. They're spending a lot of money on RT television and lots of other ways to get their message out into parts of Eastern Europe. Can you talk a little bit more about what we're doing to respond to that propaganda? I don't know which one of you wants to address that. Thanks, Senator. Well, as you know, this has been a line of effort that we've been working on very hard with members of the Congress and the Senate uh, since 2014. Uh, the total appropriation now, State Department, USAID, BBG, Broadcast Board of Governors, uh, on the U.S. side is about $100 million uh, to counter Russian propaganda. 
That money, as you know, goes for a number of things, from uh, clean, honest Russian language programming that BBG is now putting out uh, every day, the expansion of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty VOA, to about $88 million that we use in State Department and AID money to support uh, civil society, independent media, journalist training, um, including outside Russia for those Russian journalists who have, have fled. Um, we're also uh, doing quite a, quite a bit to uh, bolster programming inside Russia to the extent that we can. But this pales in comparison to the 400 million at least that Russia is spending, and frankly to uh, the levels that we spent during the Cold War on these kinds of things, which were over a billion dollars a year in the days of old USIA. And can you talk a little bit about the substance of what we're doing and who we're engaging in working with us on the content? Is it um, journalists who are reporters who have fled um, Russia who are helping us look at what, um, what kind of messages we're using? Are there others who are engaged in that effort with us? Uh, I will be... 30,000 feet, if you'll allow mm -hmm. me to protect those who participate in these programs, many of whom depend on, on that protection. Right. Uh, but we conduct training programs uh, at various locations in Europe for journalists who've either fled or who've come out to get training and are planning to go back in. We support a number of Russian language news organizations in the Baltic states and in other periphery uh, countries that are designed either to address Russian-speaking populations in those home countries and counter uh, Russian propaganda or to beam back in. We obviously support Russian language programming in Ukraine, which has some impact also in Russia as well. Um, and then this good portion that goes to BBG and VOA programming, which is uh, U.S. government free news content. We also do quite a bit to pull together efforts uh, uh, of the EU, UK, Baltic states, Central Europeans uh, through consultation, through sharing of programming, et cetera. Thank you. Um, you raised Ukraine, and obviously there have been a number of questions around what's happening in Ukraine and Russia's Russia's failure to comply with Minsk too. And there was a period where um, there were some countries in Europe that didn't seem to appreciate the extent to which this was a failure on Russia's part and viewed it more as a failure of Ukraine. I wonder if you could talk about where we are with respect to um, how the EU is viewing Minsk too at this point and what more we can do to put pressure on Russia to comply. Uh, as I said in my opening, Senator, I think we are uh, cautiously optimistic that the EU countries will again roll over sanctions at the end of June because they see what we see, namely that Minsk is far from being implemented on in any of its components. Uh, we have intensified our own diplomacy uh, after the President's meeting in Hanover with uh, President Hollande and, and Chancellor Merkel to support what those countries are doing to try to get Minsk fully complied with. Uh, they are pushing on two fronts, both um, to negotiate a fair political decentralization deal for Donbass, which does not cross over the line of creating a cat's paw or a permanent enclave of Russia in Ukraine. At the same time, we are trying to get the commitments that Russia and Donbass made to the OSCE for full access, pullback of weapons, 
implemented. As I said at one point, uh, it is this security package that is not being implemented well. We've had a sharp spike in attacks over the last uh, six weeks in particular. Um, and we've had a, a, a conscious blinding of the OSCE, disabling of cameras, shoot down by separatists of two uh, OSCE UAVs. So in both our own advocacy at every level, the president, the secretaries, uh, my work with uh, uh, the uh, President Putin's advisor on this work, we are, we are calling this out. Um, so we're, we're working on it very hard. I think the point is for Ukraine to fulfill its obligations and then we test whether Russia was ever serious about these agreements. Thank you, my time is up. Thank you, thank you very much. Senator Rubio. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Secretary Newland, let me read you a quote here from the same individual, it's the General, General Philip Breedlove. He said, Russia has chosen to be an adversary and poses a long-term existential threat the United States and to our European allies and partners. He goes on to say, Russia doesn't just want to change or challenge the agreed rules of the international order, it wants to rewrite them. Is that your assessment of the state of Russia today under Vladimir Putin as far as a role in the international uh, scene? Senator, I don't have a problem with that characterization at all. So then let me ask about uh, Ukraine. Uh, it, Roman Sohn, who's a Ukrainian activist, he wrote about Minsk. Minsk too. He said he called it a farce, and here's his quote. While Russia does nothing to implement the agreement, the U.S. and the EU are forcing Minsk too down the throat of Kiev, and that Putin knows that it is much easier for the West to put pressure on Ukraine to accept bad terms than it is to forge a consensus on keeping the pressure, including sanctions on Russia, end quote. I seem to share those views given the fact that it appears that Russia is perfectly comfortable with what they view as a frozen conflict in the region. Uh, obviously, some of what they're doing in Syria is distracting attention. We don't talk about Ukraine around here nearly as much as we once did. Everyone's focused on the role they're playing in, in Syria, and I think part of the calculation Putin had was exactly that. But it is, in fact, a frozen situation. And I walked in late when uh, Senator Menendez was asking about this. But why is he wrong when he characterizes it as a farce? Why is he wrong when he characterizes it as a situation where no one is pressuring Russia to comply but they know that the West and our European partners are pressuring Kiev, especially the Germans, to comply. Senator, I think the largest piece of, of leverage that we have on Russia is the sustainment over two years of, of deep and comprehensive sanctions across the US and the EU countries, Japan, Canada, et cetera. Uh, so again, this is why we are advocating, because Minsk has not been implemented, that sanctions have to be rolled over again. We are uh, continuing to press, as I said uh, to, in response to Senator Shaheen's uh, point, that Ukraine cannot be asked to vote on the political decentralization pieces of Minsk until the prior actions that are demanded in Minsk, real uh, ceasefire, real access throughout Donbass for OSCE, cantonment of heavy weapons, has been implemented. So that is the frame that we are using. That's the frame that Germany and France are using. I think Ukraine does itself a service by being ready at, with text on an election law, being ready with special status to implement when those agreed conditions are met, but Russia has not, either itself or, or uh, with its clients in Donbass, gotten the security conditions met. So when you talk about rollover, you mean the extension of the existing framework. Why not increase sanctions? These are now violations of an agreement that they reached and they have not complied with. And I, I'm gonna, am I right in guessing or, or in stating 
that your argument is going to be that we, can, we don't want to go any further than our partners in Europe are willing to go, and they're not willing to do additional sanctions. Well, Senator, I would say I, I was quite gratified when the, when the G7 nations uh, that met in Japan just a couple of weeks ago made clear that we are ready uh, to increase sanctions if we need to. Uh, the United States, as you know, not only maintains the sanctions but does regular maintenance to them to ensure that they can't be circumvented. Uh, we've done that on two occasions, and we're prepared to do it again. It's could there an argument be met that this pain threshold is something Putin has willing to accept? It clearly has not uh, impacted his behavior. Or do you argue that the sanctions have impacted his behavior? Well, all I can tell you is we have deterred further land grabs in Ukraine, and that was a real risk when we first started with sanctions, that they would try to run all the way to Kiev and to, and, and to Kharkiv. I will tell you that Russians are openly talking now about the pain of sanctions, including when we work with them on the Minsk thing. Uh, so they know what it's going to take to get these sanctions uh, rolled back, and it's, it's their choice whether they want to do what's necessary. And what about Crimea? How come we no longer hear Crimea mentioned? Is it a de facto now, matter of fact? Is it something we've just accepted as reality, or does that continue to be a part of our conversations that Crimea should be returned rightfully? Senator, I mentioned Crimea here in my opening. Secretary mentions it every time he speaks publicly in, in Russia. We will maintain the Crimea sanctions, which are significant, both U.S. and E.U., until Crimea is returned rightfully to Ukraine. When they took over Crimea, there was a sense, and I thought, that it would be a boondoggle for the Russian government, that it would cost them a bunch of money to maintain that area. Uh, has it, in fact, turned out, other than the, the geostrategic advantage, do we have any sense as to how many resources they're having to put in to uphold and maintain this now as part of their national territory? Uh, it is our estimate that Russia is spending billions of rubles trying to maintain its, its foothold in Crimea. I think the, the most concerning factor, though, is that they are further militarizing Crimea. Dr. Carpenter might want to speak to that. Thank you. Sen well, I would just say that absolutely that Russia is militarizing Crimea. They've put in very sophisticated uh, A2AD capabilities there since the start of the conflict. Thank you. Very good. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for taking so much uh, time with us. I know that um, there was some conversation with Senator Perdue over uh, the U.S.-Georgia bilateral relationship, but I wanted to explore that relationship in the context of the upcoming NATO summit. Uh, we are uh, hopeful uh, that we will continue on track to offer membership to uh, Montenegro. Uh, I, I think they are ready, and it is an important signal uh, that NATO still has an open-door policy for those that are ready and that, in general, transatlantic institutions are still open for business despite uh, the aggressive tactics of uh, Moscow. But the Georgians are likely going to leave uh, Warsaw disappointed. Um, and uh, the question remains whether there is any future for Georgia inside NATO uh, while there is still a contest over these territories. What we know is that Putin's ambition, I don't think, what I, what I believe is that Putin's ambition is not to militarily own Ukraine. He wants to continue 
uh, clouded title over a portion of that country so that eventually there becomes such economic and political tumult that a government is reinstalled in Kyiv that is much more friendly to Moscow's interests. And so it's in our interests to make it clear to the Russians that to the extent that they are successful in Ukraine or other places in the future of creating clouded title over portions of territory, that it doesn't prevent those countries from being eligible to join transatlantic institutions. So um, happy both of you are involved in this book of business. Uh, so uh, talk to me about uh, what the future of Georgia's potential NATO membership is. I am someone who supports um, a, at least a membership action plan for Georgia, um, uh, but uh, and is concerned that without uh, the settlement of these territorial questions, Georgia will forever be disappointed uh, walking away from NATO summit after NATO summit. Senator, I think we expect at the Warsaw summit that the alliance will reiterate the, the message that we've had to Georgia since 2008 regarding our expectations of membership. Uh, one of the things that we are seeking to do as an alliance for Georgia is reorient uh, NATO-Georgia relations, U.S.-Georgia relations, away from, in security terms, away from simply preparing them to deploy with us in Afghanistan or in Kosovo, and much more towards a focus on their homeland security needs, their, their national defense resilience, et cetera. So we're working on that. Um, the, the best antidote to Russian pressure uh, is a successful, prosperous, democratic Georgia. That's why we work so hard with them on uh, justice reform, on uh, rule of law, on strong institutions, on market access. We're also encouraging Georgia in its relationship with the European Union as it implements the trade benefits of that to reach out to the Abkhaz, et cetera, and make it possible for them through Tbilisi to have the benefits of the trade relationship with Europe uh, so that uh, someday those parts of Georgia uh, may see stronger benefit from Tbilisi than what anything that is being offered by any external neighbor. But you're absolutely right that it's essential for us to uh, continue to be strong supporters of Georgia's aspirations. Let me uh, let me actually ask a different question of you, uh, um, Dr. Carter, and you can answer this one as well if you if you'd like. Um, we have been obsessive in this place about military assistance for um, military assistance for the Ukrainians. There have been many members of the Senate who have been disappointed at the level of military assistance we've provided. Um, but it is not a coincidence that the Ukrainians have become much more effective at rebutting Russian advances. Um, and it is not a coincidence that this has happened during a time in which notwithstanding a question over the future of Javelin missiles, we have been transferring pretty important technology and important expertise and training resources to the Ukrainians. There's a success story to tell here about the integration of the Department of Defense here um, and the Ukrainian military, which is part of the story uh, as to why, the, well, well, insufficient, the lines have been able to largely hold over a longer period of time. Can you just talk to us a little bit about the, the success of the partnerships that we have had with the Ukrainian military? Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Senator. So we have launched with Ukraine a substantial training and equipping program there is also an advisory component to this that is focused on defense reforms, which is actually a fairly uh, substantial effort. But the training equipping alone is, um, is hundreds of millions of dollars. 
Uh, for this year, it's $335 million uh, and involves, it, last year we were focused on the National Guard, which is within the Ministry of Interior. We train six companies. Now we're training Ukraine's conventional armed forces as well as its special operations forces. All told, by the time the, this training package is completed, we will have trained uh, close to 3,000 Ukrainian troops. And the results uh, on the battlefield have been significant. Uh, a lot of the, the training process involves taking soldiers who have fought in the Donbass, uh, forming new units. Uh, we train them primarily in Yavoriv in Western Ukraine, and we train them in realistic conditions. Uh, we, we run them through basic, basic skills where they learn marksmanship and how to emplace artillery up through more advanced techniques, and then send them as coherent units out to the Donbass where they're able to defend their territory. And one of the best examples, uh, as you referenced, Senator, of Ukraine being able to hold the line came a year ago in June when the separatists launched a, a massive assault uh, on the town of Marinka. Uh, and the Ukrainians actually had uh, the capability to detect uh, surveillance by the Russian separatist combined teams and, and push back, uh, resulting in significant casualties on the other side. Um, and so I think our, our training and equipping program is, is very successful. Uh, we would like to be able to continue it thanks to support from Congress uh, for this effort through USAI. Uh, and we're very proud of the work that, that our, uh, our folks are doing from the 173rd as well as from California National Guard uh, to run this program. With regards to, if I could just tie this with regards to your earlier uh, question about Georgia, Part of what we are trying to do now with Georgia is to replicate some of the success that we've had with Ukraine and to implement a training program that is not just focused on expeditionary operations that Georgians perform in Afghanistan, which are primarily counterinsurgency focused, to <coughs> training and equipping that is more focused on territorial defense, uh, because that is something that clearly Georgia needs, um, as does Ukraine, after, after years of uh, hauled out military and mismanagement. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Thank Chairman. You. Absolutely. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, I'm going to ask you three questions, and I will submit these questions for the record for the second panel because I cannot stay to hear their answers to them. But first, in your professional opinion, what would the likely effect on Russian behavior be if the United States dramatically reduced or withdrew its support from NATO? As a former ambassador to NATO, uh, I would say, Senator, that that would be a strategic mistake for the United States. Dr. Carpenter. Senator, I could think of no greater gift to Russia and no greater strategic vulnerability for the United States in the Euro-Atlantic area than that course of action. Second question, on the eve of the Warsaw summit in early July, how concerned are our European NATO allies about a potential change in the U.S. level of support for NATO? You know, obviously, uh, allies are uh, watching the debate here in the United States with a lot of interest, as they always do. Um, in our conversations, I think they find it very difficult to imagine that the United States would break a 70-year treaty commitment uh, which has served us so well. Dr. Carpenter. Senator, um, I will say that in my conversations and travels with my counterparts that I have heard significant concern, but um, I think a lot of our partners believe that we will remain committed members of NATO, in fact, who play a leadership role in the alliance. 
Third, in your professional opinion, is NATO obsolete? NATO's needed now more than ever. Senator, I couldn't agree more. I don't have any other questions. Thanks, Mr. Chair. I have no idea under, in what context those questions were asked. But uh, I would, uh, just to follow up, and I, I do very much appreciate you asking those. I know that we've had Madeleine Albright here. We've had people of various persuasions in here. Uh, obviously, the NATO alliance is very important to us and very important to Europe, as is hopefully TTIP over time, where we end up uh, economically tying our two, two sides of the ocean more closely together. What is it, on the other hand, that we can do to actually leverage our NATO allies, which, let's face it, we, we are a global entity. Um, Seventy percent of the defense resources are spent by the United States, 30 percent by them. I realize that we have other responsibilities around the world outside of NATO. But what is it, what is the real leverage point to get, uh, for lack of a better word, those who are somewhat being laggards, if you will, they are violating the treaty agreement, uh, the 2 percent level of commitment. What is it that we do? We keep wringing our hands. We keep pressuring all of us on both sides of the aisle, talk with our counterparts uh, at Munich and other places, but it just continues to be the case where we are the provider of security services. We appreciate so much what they did to help us, especially in Afghanistan, which was a very unusual circumstance. We appreciate their commitment, but we still only have four countries that are honoring the monetary side of the treaty. Senator, I would say that a combination of the Kremlin and ISIL have motivated allies in a way that we hadn't seen for many years. Uh, as we head towards, as you remember, at the Whale Summit, we got commitments from allies to reverse defense spending uh, slide. 70% of allies are meeting those commitments, and I think we'll be able to say at Warsaw that most allies are now increasing their defense budgets, and that within a few years we'll have, uh, we'll be in double digits on the number of allies who are at 2%. But uh, we all have to continue to advocate and push, and we have to create structures in, in NATO as we are trying to do as we head towards Warsaw where the burden sharing is built in, as the U.S. is more evident in some countries, others are more evident in other countries, as we did with Afghanistan. So we're going to continue to work on that, but we, we very much value the advocacy that you all do when you're in Europe uh, in, on a bipartisan basis. It's a very important for Europe to know that burden sharing is expected by all Americans. Thank you. Dr. Carpenter, do you wish to add to that? I would just say, Chairman, that um, right now we've got five allies, including the United States, that are at 2%. Um, couple things. One, there is an additional pledge of 20% of defense spending spent on capital uh, investments on equipment, which is very important to sustain the capabilities of the alliance going forward. Uh, so it's important to accentuate that as well. Uh, I think we need to, to talk to allies about this each and every day. Um, but the other point I wanted to make is having just come from a trip to the Western Balkans where I uh, met with uh, some of our allies there, um, they also do provide troops to some of the NATO missions uh, that we run in Afghanistan and other places. And so that it is important to remember that in addition to their defense spending, that uh, a lot of our allies are also contributing troops uh, to the fight. Thank you. You all have been outstanding witnesses. Uh, people uh, have gained a lot from your knowledge and your willingness to be here. The record will close, if it will, uh, on Thursday at the end of the day. If you would respond to questions timely, I know you will. Thank you for your service to our country and for being here to help us. And with that, we'll move to the second panel. Thank you both very much.
So we uh, thank our second panel for being here. I think you see that sometimes with our second panels, there's an exodus. Uh, what we have found that our second panels in many cases are more interesting and more enlightening. Uh, I'm not saying that's necessarily the case today, but we thank you both uh, for being here. Uh, we have Mr. David Satter, a senior fellow from the Hudson Institute. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. Uh, we have to, uh, Mr. Vladimirich Vich, Karamurza, we thank you uh, so much for being here. I know you were at an earlier uh, hearing we had this year, and all of us wanted to have you come back. We thank you for making, your, making the effort to be here. So with that, um, Mr. Satter, if you would begin with about five minutes, we'd appreciate it. We'll move to Mr. Karamurza. Yes, now it's, oh, it's on. Good, thank you. Uh, th thank you, Senator. I'm very glad to be here and uh, f very anxious to talk about U.S.-Russian relations, not only from the point of view of policies, treaties, and bilateral arrangements, but also a very important question which informs all of the latter, which is the spirit of Russia. Uh, oftentimes we make policy on the assumption that the spirit of Russia is actually very little different from the spirit of the United States. This is one of the reasons why we often are surprised by Russian behavior. If uh, we take it for granted that the leaders of a country are dedicated to the national interest and the welfare of the population of the country, we find it hard to understand a country in which the leadership is totally indifferent to the welfare of the population. If we take it for granted that the human individual is an end in himself, we find it hard to deal with a country in which individuals are raw material for the realization of the political goals of the political leaders, and many of those goals are very bizarre indeed. For this reason, there's always a danger that we will uh, mistake Russian actions. One of the most important things to bear in mind about Russia is that war is an instrument of internal policy. The first Chechen war was launched in order uh, for there to be a short, victorious war that would boost the rating of, at that point, President Yeltsin, who was suffering because of the after effects of privatization and the impoverishment of the, of the population. The war proved, out, proved to be neither short nor victorious. Second Chechen war was undertaken in order to guarantee the succession to Yeltsin, and this is one of the most important episodes of Russian history, also one about which Americans are very much in the dark. Uh, a terrorist act took place. It was used to justify a new war in Chechnya. Yeltsin, who was, uh, Putin rather, who was very little known, became the prime minister, took charge of that war, and on the strength of, of the successful prosecution of that war was elected president. Later, uh, the bombs that were placed uh, began to uh, appear very suspicious. A fifth bomb was found in the city of Ryazan, outside of Moscow, and, it, and the persons who put it in the basement of that building turned out to be not Chechen terrorists, but actually agents of the, cage of the FSB. The, uh, War broke out again uh, as a result of the events in uh, Ukraine 
where a self-organizing anti-criminal revolution demonstrated to the Russian people, potentially, how it might be possible to resist the kleptocratic authorities who were in charge in their own country. A massive, in effect, diversionary uh, effort was made to distract Russians from the true lessons of Euromaidan. And when the resistance of the Ukrainians proved uh, greater than the Russians expected, a new diversionary uh, operation was launched in Syria to distract the Russian population from what was going on in Ukraine. Under these circumstances, one of the most important things that uh, the United States can do is reinforce the deterrence to using war in this, in this manner and also to make renewed efforts to reach the Russian people about the true activities and motivations of their authorities so that they're not just unwitting instruments in the hands of, in the hands of their leaders, but are in a position finally to make their leaders answer to them. This is the intellectual challenge that faces American policy and over and above and complementary to the challenge of strengthening the purely uh, practical aspects of deterrence on which in fact uh, European stability and world stability depend. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Karamurza. Thank you very much, uh, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, Senator Rich, Senator Shaheen. Thank you for holding this uh, important and timely hearing. Senator, and Senator Markey stepped in, too. I know he's oh, hard to say. Senator so. Markey, thank you so much for being here, and thank you for the opportunity yes. to testify and to appear before you today. Uh, 25 years ago, at a conference held, of all places, in Moscow, member states of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe established as a principle that issues relating to democracy, human rights, and the rule of law, and I quote, are matters of direct and legitimate concern to all participating states and do not belong exclusively to the internal affairs of the state concerned, end of quote. Through its membership of both the OSCE and the Council of Europe, the Russian Federation has undertaken clear and binding commitments with respect to election standards, the freedom of expression, the freedom of assembly, and other important aspects of human rights. And all these principles are also enshrined in the Russian Constitution. In its 16 years, nearly a full generation in power, Vladimir Putin's regime has turned these commitments and these principles into a dead letter. Today, elections in our country serve as a mere ritual for ordaining the incumbents, with, a, with any meaningful opposition in most cases simply disqualified from the ballot, and with voting marred by intimidation and fraud. After March 2000, so in more than 16 years, not a single national election in Russia has been assessed as free and fair by OSC and Council of Europe observers. And according to independent estimates, up to 14 million votes were stolen in favor of the ruling party in the most recent parliamentary election in 2011, which was followed by the largest street demonstrations under Vladimir Putin's rule, as more than 100,000 people went to the streets of Moscow to protest against fraud. And preparations for this September's parliamentary vote are certainly not promising. With new restrictions imposed on both campaigning and observation, and with the establishment of a new national guard that will be allowed to use force and shoot without warning in the event of mass demonstrations after the election. For more than a decade now, the Russian parliament has been devoid of genuine opposition. Not a place for discussion, in the unforgettable words 
of its own speaker. The same applies to most media outlets. After taking over or shutting down independent television networks in the early years of Mr. Putin's rule, the Kremlin now controls all national airwaves, which it uses to rail against the outside world, primarily the West, including the United States and Ukraine, as well as Mr. Putin's political opponents at home, who are denounced as traitors, foreign agents, and enemies of Russia. The few surviving pockets of media independence are under severe pressure, as we saw again recently with the editorial purges of the RBC Media Group, following its coverage of the Panama Papers. The police, the prosecuting authorities, and the courts are used by the Kremlin as tools for suppressing and punishing dissent. According to Memorial, Russia's most respected human rights organization, there are currently 87 political prisoners in our country, a number which is already comparable with the late Soviet era. These prisoners include leftist politician Sergei Udaltsov, the brother of anti-corruption campaigner Alexei Navalny, Oleg Navalny, Opposition activist Ildar Dadin, who was jailed under a new law that targets individual street protests. And Alexei Pechugin, the remaining hostage of the Yukos case. And they also include prisons of the infamous Bolotne case, who were jailed uh, merely for the fact that they came out of the streets to protest against Mr. Putin's inauguration in May of 2012. But those who oppose Vladimir Putin's regime risk not only their well-being and their freedom, they also risk their lives. On the 27th of February of last year, Boris Nemtsov, former Deputy Prime Minister and the leader of Russia's pro-democracy opposition, was killed by five bullets in the back as he walked home over the Bolshoi Moskovetsky Bridge, just 200 yards from the Kremlin Wall. A year on, the investigation into his murder is stalling. Although they have apprehended the alleged perpetrators, investigators have been unable to pursue the organizers and the masterminds. In fact, according to media reports, attempts to track the higher-ups were personally vetoed by General Alexander Bastrykin, the head of Russia's investigative committee. And despite the obvious links between the murder suspects and Kremlin-appointed Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov, he hasn't been even formally questioned in the case. I can also speak to the dangers that face opposition activists in Russia from personal experience. <coughs> exactly one year ago in Moscow, I fell into a coma as a result of severe poisoning that led to multiple organ failure that was certainly intended to kill. In fact, doctors told uh, my wife, who is here today, uh, that they estimated the chance of survival at around 5%. So I'm very fortunate and certainly very happy to be here today and to be speaking and to be testifying before you. Our friends in the West often ask how they can be helpful to the cause of human rights and democracy in Russia. And the answer to this is very simple. Please stay true to your values. We're not asking for your support. It is our task to fight for democracy and rule of law in our country. The only thing we ask from Western leaders is that they stop supporting Mr. Putin by treating him as a respectable and worthy partner and by allowing Mr. Putin's cronies to use Western countries as havens for their looted wealth. The United States has been a pioneer in putting a stop to this. Nearly four years ago, this Congress passed the Sergei Magnitsky Act, a groundbreaking law that for the first time ever introduced personal accountability for human rights abuse and corruption by prohibiting those who violate the rights of Russian citizens and who pillage the resources of Russian citizens from traveling to the US and using the US financial system. And I'd like to use this opportunity to thank you, Senator Cardin, for your leadership and your unyielding commitment on this issue. Testifying before this committee, in fact, in this very room, I was here with him on that day. In June 2013, Boris Nemtsov called the Magnitsky Act, and I quote, 
the most pro-Russian law in the history of any foreign parliament, end of quote. It is my sincere hope that this law is implemented to its full extent without regard for rank or influence, and that these crooks and these abusers get a clear message that they will not be welcome here, and that will be the best possible way to support the cause of human rights in Russia. Thank you very much once again for the opportunity to testify. Well, thank you uh, both uh, for your testimony, and certainly uh, I appreciate the personal, the deep commitment you have and the personal experiences. We have a vote. I'm going to turn over to Senator Cardin for questions, and uh, Senator Cardin, I think what I'll do is go vote so you can, so we can flip out. I want to thank you, though. I appreciate uh, your mention of the Magnitsky Act, and I want to thank Senator Cardin for his tremendous leadership for years on human rights issues, but particularly uh, in causing this to become law. Thank you very much. Let me uh, first uh, thank the chairman uh, for his incredible uh, support in regards to this committee focusing on human rights issues. And let me thank you, Mr. Karamester, for being here. I know that it was a long trip uh, from Russia to come and, and visit. We thank that your wife is here, and we're thankful that you are uh, healthy. We know the personal risks that you've taken. Let me just update you uh, first on the Sergei Minetsky uh, global efforts that we're making so that the legislation that we passed aimed towards Russia can be used to help all uh, countries uh, uh, protect the rights of their citizens. And you're absolutely right. The Moscow document in 1990 made it very clear that the commitments to basic human rights are not an internal matter for a country, but are legitimate interest of all the members of the OSCE. So the Sergei Minitsky enforces that by saying that if Russia does not take action against the abusers, we're not going to give them the benefits of our country. And it is, as I indicated in my opening statement, we have uh, applied that uh, numerous times in, in the United States against Russians who have violated human, basic human rights that have not been held accountable by their government. Um, and we believe it can be further used uh, today on the floor of the United States Senate by a unanimous consent, all 100 senators, once again, second time, uh, confirmed uh, that the Minitsky law should be global. So uh, we in anticipate by the end of this Congress that we will, in fact, have a global Minitsky law so that we can uh, take the, uh, our experience from Russia and use it in other countries. As you know, Russia's influence is also in other countries, so we be helpful. Uh, I want to drill down a little bit on your comments about uh, personal safety. Uh, it's so important to put faces on issues. We saw that with Sergei Minitsky allowed us to pass a bill. Otherwise, when you talk about 50 people being in prison, it sort of rolls off the international news stories pretty quickly. But when you put a face to it and recognize what an individual has gone through, and your personal presence here today makes a huge difference. And I Thank you for doing that. Uh, the elections are September. What type of opportunities do you believe opposition forces will have in Russia, both directly participating in the elections and then expressing their views in regards to uh, uh, the, the parliamentary elections? Uh, will there be an opportunity for opposition uh, participation? Uh, and 
you indicated that the protest after the 2011 was pretty uh, embarrassing to Russia. What do you anticipate will be done if the Russian public believes these elections are not fair and want to express themselves? How will the government respond? Thank you very much, Senator Cotton, for the question, and, and thank you also for your efforts on the Global Magnitsky Act. I, I completely associate myself with what you said. I mean, we know that human rights are universal, and the protection of human rights is universal. And so I think the responsibility for violating human rights should be universal, too. Um, on your question about the elections, um, as I mentioned in the opening statement, we haven't had a free and fair national election in Russia in more than 16 years if we take the gold standard of OSCE election observation, Council of Europe election observation. And of course, we have no reason to believe that the upcoming uh, parliamentary election on September the 18th uh, will be free and fair. In fact, we are seeing the preparations already. Uh, new restrictions imposed on election observers, new restrictions imposed on journalists who cover the elections, new restrictions imposed on the campaign itself, uh, this new National Guard that is clearly being prepared by the Kremlin in the event of a repeat of the mass protests we saw on Balotne and other places uh, in December 2011 and early 2012. Um, and, and there's always this ongoing debate within the opposition whether we should even participate in the rigged and unfair elections. And I believe that yes, we should. And my colleagues believe that yes, we should because we can use even uh, this flawed and manipulated and rigged electoral process uh, in order to help uh, get our message across, get through that wall of propaganda and lies that's been built up, built up by the regime. And also, I think, very importantly, to help uh, this young generation of pro-democracy and civil society activists in our country to go through that process and gain the political experience that they will need in the future, because the day will come when Russia will have a free and fair election. And we have to start preparing for that, I think, now. And so the Open Russia movement, which I have the honor of representing, uh, will be supporting candidates in individual single-member districts for the State Duma, across the country. Uh, it's a wide geography from, from St. Petersburg to Irkutsk. Um, and I'm now going around the country in different regions and taking part in the campaign events and meetings with voters. It was just in St. Petersburg a few days ago in Irkutsk a couple of weeks ago. Um, and uh, you know, I'm seeing how effective and how necessary and how important it is. And, and I think it's also important to mention that we have this opportunity to participate in this election this year, uh, thanks to Boris Nemtsov. Because uh, two and a half years ago, in 2013, he won a legislative seat in the region of Yaroslavl. And according to Russian law, a party that is represented in at least one of the regional legislatures in Russia does not need to collect signatures in order to have access to the ballot. And the Putin regime usually uses uh, the signatures as a filter to get unwanted candidates off the ballot to disqualify them. So because we have that opportunity, the People's Freedom Party, which was founded and led by Boris Nemtsov, has this opportunity. Uh, we will be on the ballot. Our candidates will be on the ballot this September. Uh, and I think uh, it's also, uh, it would be very important for our partners in the OSC, including the United States, to pay attention to what, to what will be going on, uh, to pay attention to the potential fraud, to send a robust monitoring mission uh, as much as possible. And I know there will be an OSC parliamentary assembly session coming up in July, I believe, in Belize. It would be very important, I think, to raise that issue, uh, that there should be a robust observation uh, of the Russian parliamentary election this September. And if there are cases of fraud, they should be publicized, uh, and they should be talked about, they should be paid attention to, uh, because I think the only thing um, uh, this regime was afraid of is public reaction in Russia. We saw how afraid they were during the mass protests uh, in the winter of 2011, 2012. Uh, and, and I think uh, we should, the whole world should be watching closely 
as the September election approaches, especially as, as we've both mentioned today, uh, election standards and human rights are not an internal affair. Yeah. Congressman Smith and Senator Wicker will be leading a delegation to Duplisi in July. Uh, I will uh, make sure that the Russian election is part of our priorities for those discussions. And yes, we will participate within the OSCE on the monitoring, uh, and we will make sure that we report accurately what happens in Russia. We are concerned, though, that knowing what happened in the previous election, that there could be some personal safety issues associated with participation in this election. Do you have that concern? Well, as you know, I've had some reason you to be worried about personal safety. And, and I know many of my colleagues also obviously face this risk on a, on a daily basis. But I think, you know, those of us who, um, who are, you know, activists, leaders, public faces of the democratic opposition in Russia, you know, we've known for a long time uh, that it, it's a dangerous vocation to be in opposition to Mr. Putin's regime. Uh, but, you know, we've accepted that. We think, um, you know, frankly, that our country has no future under this regime, that it's, this regime is driving our country into a dead end. And if, uh, if we want to fight for our country's future, uh, we have to accept those risks. And I think there's nothing better uh, this regime would like us to do than, than to give up and run away. And I don't think yeah. we should be giving them that pleasure. Mr. Satter, you, you raise a very almost frightening point that Russia uses more for its domestic agenda more than it than not necessarily the the importance of the the battle itself but the political significance or the how it distracts from other issues uh, do you anticipate that we might see more military action by russia uh, to further its overall objectives not so much the specific area where the military military operations take place but to uh, further their domestic support for their broader goals? That's the key determinant. Uh, and that's the most important thing for the United States to keep in mind in anticipating possible Russian aggression. That what will motivate it, the Russian authorities is not the desire to rebuild the Soviet empire. They're actually, I think, indifferent to that. What they go to war to strengthen the hold on power of a small kleptocratic group which monopolizes uh, uh, the instruments of power and, and property in the country. If they feel threatened and they understand that the best way to consolidate their hold on power is to find a pretext for military aggression, they'll look for it. And that's why uh, deterrence is so important, but not only deterrence in military terms, but psychological deterrence, something which is very much neglected by the United States because we're, 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 we, with great difficulty, understand the cultural context in Russia and the psychological context, what's really going on there. Uh, and uh, all of the goodwill that we show, I was struck, in fact, by a statement of Secretary Kerry recently in which he said about Secretary, uh, Minister Lavrov that he lied to me to my face. And I was taken aback by that remark because I was surprised that Kerry expected anything different. Uh, this is the uh, indispensable background 
to policy decisions, an awareness of the people with whom you're having, with whom you're dealing. And uh, the, this, I think, is what's missing. This is what has to be reinforced. This can also be an important element in deterrence. Thank, thank you for that answer. We're going to stay in brief recess till the chairman returns so that I can vote on the amendment that's pending on the floor of the Senate. So this, the committee will stay in brief recess. Uh. Gentlemen, looks like you're having a nice conversation. Uh, do you want to share any of that with me? Please forgive me. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, uh, I actually would like to just leave it open. I know you had five minutes uh, for, for comments, and I very much appreciate your uh, reference to the McNixty Agreement um, or Act. Um, I wonder if there's anything else from a personal standpoint you'd like to share with us while you're here. You heard the first two witnesses. Uh, from a prof professional standpoint, are there things that, uh, I know there were numbers of questions from committee members about things that we could be doing that we're not. Um, are there observations that the two of you would have relative to additional pressure uh, on Russia relative to what is happening internally, which is what most of your focus is here today? Um, I know you, you didn't ask for help. I heard that in your testimony. But is, are there other things? And I know you said remain true to our values. But on top of that, are there some additional activities we could be involved in? Thank you, Chairman Coker. Thank you for the question. And also, uh, thank you for your leadership on the Global Magnitsky Act, which has recently been marked out by the committee. And also, uh, for the Senate Resolution Number 78, uh, which is, was dedicated to the memory of Boris Nemtsov, and which is one of its points. Uh, task the U.S. government with raising this question of the investigation and the progress or the lack thereof uh, in the investigation every time they meet with the Russian government counterparts, and that's very important, and, and thank you for this. Um, and on your question, I think, first of all, it's, it's very important to um, distinguish, and, and sometimes, you know, even informed commentators make this mistake, they use a shorthand uh, by saying Russia, when, what they actually mean is the Putin regime and the Kremlin and the behavior of the Putin regime. And, and obviously for me as a Russian citizen, that's, that's a pretty important difference. Uh, and and uh, I think these things should not be confused with each other. And, and the current regime, of course, is not the product of a democratic election. It's not the product of the free will of the Russian people. And I think it's important to, to bear this in mind. And, and on the question of what could be done, I think, um, frankly, a more robust and more active implementation um, of the Magnitsky Act uh, is, is the single most important thing that I would mention in this regard. Of course, this act targets not just those implicated in the Magnitsky case itself, but Section 4B uh, of this act widens its scope to other gross human rights abuses. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's been, I think, if I'm not mistaken, there have been 39 people added to the 
uh, US Magnitsky list since the, the law came into force. But most of them have been low or mid-level human rights abusers. And of course, they should be on the list too. But as I mentioned in the opening statement, I think it's very important not to have any glass ceilings in terms of rank and influence. And what, from your perspective, why do you think it's been mostly targeted towards lower-level individuals? Well, it's, pr it's probably not for me to comment on the, uh, you know, on the, on the motivations behind the, uh, the, the U.S. administration's actions. You know, I'm, I'm not an American, I'm a foreigner. Uh, and and uh, I, do understand, yeah. I do understand that there, there are uh, rigid um, uh, criteria built into the law itself, so they have to be, there has to be clear evidence. Uh, but I think there frankly is uh, clear evidence about very high profile and high-ranking human rights abusers within the current Kremlin regime. And uh, there have been media reports here in the U.S. that, for instance, uh, Ramzan Kadyrov, whom I mentioned, and General Bastrykin, the head of the investigative committee, have both been put on a classified uh, part of the Magnitsky Act. Uh, and frankly, I think, in, in my personal view, the most important aspect of this act is the public naming and shaming of human rights abusers. I, don't, I see no reason why these individuals should not be placed on the, on the open list. Um, in early 2014, when, uh, when Mr. Nemtsov came here for the last time, uh, he had several meetings here on the Hill with uh, members of the leadership of both parties in both houses, and he uh, suggested several names uh, of high-profile human rights abusers in the Putin regime that could be added to the list. One of those was General Bastrykin. Uh, another was uh, Mr. Churov, the now former head of the Central Electoral Commission, who was responsible uh, for covering up the mass fraud in the 2011 and 2012 electoral cycle, and earlier as well. Um, and I think, I believe there were 13 names that Mr. Nemtsov suggested uh, be put on the list, and, and so far not a single one has been put on the list. Um, a year ago, former Russian Prime Minister Mikhail Kasyanov and I came here and, and also had several meetings here on the Hill, and we suggested that the names of Kremlin propaganda officials, who call themselves journalists but who are not, uh, they're state officials involved in effectively state-sponsored incitement against those who oppose Mr. Putin's regime. Uh, and we suggested that in particular those who were engaged in incitement against Boris Nemtsov, who called him a traitor, who called him a foreign agent, who called him an enemy of Russia, who said that he's financed by the US, who said that he would have welcomed Nazi troops uh, had he been in Moscow in 1941, and so on and so forth, and I'm not making this up, these are direct quotes, that these people who are responsible for incitement should also be put on a sanction list. Well, so far, uh, not one of those has been put on a sanctions list. So uh, I really think that the uh, most effective way, and frankly the most principled, the most honorable way, uh, to deal with those human rights abusers is to place them on that sanctions list. Because the unique thing uh, and the groundbreaking thing about the Magnitsky Act was that it was not uh, sanctioning a country. These, they're not sanctions against Russia. They're not even sanctions against the Russian government. Right. Uh, these are sanctions against specific individuals personally involved in human rights abuse and personally involved in corruption. Uh, and I think uh, this, this is the way it should be done. Let me ask you, when you, your observation, when somebody is placed on the list, is it uh, truly a significant punishment to them to, to, to be sanctioned in that manner? Thank you. This is a very important question. And uh, we can talk about many similarities that exist between the Soviet regime uh, and what we have in our country today. We have political prisoners. We have media censorship. We have the lack of free and fair elections, and so on and so forth. But for all these similarities, there's also one very important difference. And that is that members of the Soviet Politburo did not hold their bank accounts in the West. They did not send their kids to study in the West. They didn't buy real estate and yachts in the West. Leaders of the current regime and Kremlin-connected oligarchs do that. And I think this double standard and this hypocrisy has to stop. And we certainly know from experience that when high-ranking human rights abusers are placed on those sanctioned lists, uh, uh, it has a very strong effect. And I can give you just one example. 
Uh, in 2007, uh, when there was this whole controversy about the relocation of a Soviet uh, war memorial in Tallinn, in Estonia, members of the NASHI, which was a pro-Kremlin youth group, uh, engaged in a, in a harassment campaign against the then Estonian ambassador to Moscow, Marina Kaliran. She's currently the Estonian foreign minister. They were following her everywhere, trying to sabotage her press conferences, throwing things at her, and shouting abuse, and so on and so forth. And so the, uh, the Estonian government decided to impose uh, visa sanctions uh, on Mr. Yakimenko, who was then a serving minister in Mr. Putin's government, Minister for Youth, and he was the de facto leader of this group. So he was placed on the visa ban list, and because Estonia is a member of the Schengen Agreement, uh, this visa ban uh, uh, had a, a Schengen-wide force, so he could not travel to any uh, Schengen country, which is most of the European Union. So for nine years that have passed since then, Mr. Yakimenko has been desperately trying to get himself of that list, of the visa blacklist. And for all of those nine years, for all the other transgressions and all the other human rights abuses that are happening in, in, in our country, there hasn't been a single case of a harassment against a foreign diplomat stationed in Moscow. And I think this is all you need to know about the effect and the effectiveness of these types of personal targeted measures against those human rights abusers. Mr. Satter, do you want anything to it? Uh, well, I think that, um, hit, hit the red button. I'm you. sorry. That's all right. Uh, I think the future of Russia depends. I, I've been involved with Russia for many years and have thought a great deal about it. I think the first priority, the, 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 the danger of participating in elections which the regime controls although I'm not opposed to it, is that it gives legitimacy to the regime and actually, under controlled circumstances, gives the impression to the, to the population that what's taking place is a real democratic process. This is the same dilemma that people face. And for example, I, I, I faced it one time when I was receiving invitations to appear on Russian television that I did not want to take part in a in a performance that in fact was not honest and was, did, not did not conform to, to normal ethical rules. I think, but, but the, 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 there is some value in taking, taking part in these elections as long as those who do so don't nurture illusions that this can change the regime. It can't. That's a process that's, that's controlled by the regime. The regime will be changed in other ways. Most important, in my view, requirement for Russia's future is something, a Russian equivalent of the South African Commission on Truth and Reconciliation. The 25 years of post-communist history are not well understood, and unfortunately, the, the abuses began not with Putin. Putin is the hand-picked successor of Boris Yeltsin. They began with Yeltsin. And the crimes began with Yeltsin. They began it with the, uh, the massacre at the Ostankino tele television tower in 1993 and the, and the shelling of the Russian parliament. The carpet bombing of Grozny in 1995 in which the, it's estimated 20,000 people were killed, all of them, almost all of them civilians. Now it appears that the 1996 elections in which uh, Yeltsin was quote-unquote re-elected were falsified and most important of, of all the circumstances under which Putin became the new Russian president uh, he became the president in the aftermath of the bombing of four apartment buildings in Russia that terrified the entire country galvanized support for a new and even more bloody war in Chechnya and created the conditions 
for Putin, who had a 2% approval rating in the country, to become the national savior and the country's new president. When he took over as president, he brought with him his KGB, FSB entourage, and they proceeded to eliminate what was left of the freedoms that had been tolerated under Yeltsin. The precondition for Putin's coming to power was the criminalization of Russia under Yeltsin because only a provocation like the apartment bombings could save such a kleptocratic regime as the, as the one that was put in place by Yeltsin under conditions of formal democracy. This group that's now in power will do anything to hold on to power, but one of the most important instruments at their disposal is the ability to confuse the population about the population, about the people's true interests and their true history. So the first requirement for Russia's resurrection, in my view, is to clarify all of the historical episodes, the apartment bombings, the Nordost <clears throat> theater siege, the Beslan school massacre uh, in 2004 in which children and parents in a gymnasium uh, who were held hostage by Chechen terrorists were attacked by Russian troops with flamethrowers and grenade launchers and burned alive. And of course, the war, the wars in Georgia and Ukraine. Only on the basis of a true, truthful understanding of the country's history will it be possible to change the psychological state of the country, making it, making it realistic to create a genuinely law-based system. And once that psychological and ethical basis exists, it's important for Russia to have what it lost in 1918 when the Bolsheviks dispersed the Constituent Assembly, a new Constituent Assembly, in order to create a real constitution, not the constitution that was created uh, in the wake of the destruction of the Russian parliament in 1993 in order to, to, to suit the uh, uh, power requirements of Yeltsin. Under those circumstances, and with the understanding that those parts of the Russian Federation, including the Caucasus, that wish to detach themselves and have an independent national existence, be given the right to do so, the conditions will then exist for Russia to, tra to, to transform itself into a democratic country. It must be pointed out that as a result of 25 years of post-communist history, Russia, that Russia has acquired an educated, sophisticated, worldly middle class for which this type of regime is absolutely inappropriate. And that process is going to continue as globalization continues and as people take advantage of the, of the exposure to free information which was denied them under the Soviet regime. Well, we thank you both for being here. Um, we, uh, we will have a number of questions, I know, coming from people who weren't able to be here uh, for the second panel, and we'll try to have all those in by the close of business on Thursday. If y'all could respond fairly quickly to those, we know you don't have the same staff that the previous two 
uh, witnesses had, but uh, we thank you for the light you've shed here today, for your personal experiences, uh, for your help, and uh, we look forward to having you back again in the near future. And with that, uh, uh, the committee's adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.